there's some days when I look both ways when I leave the house. I have had stuff show up in my house. I've had my son got a death threat uh, online and it was very credible with listing the name of our synagogue and the, and where to find him. And um, that was on the comment section of Breitbart. And our address was all over the comment section of Daily Caller. And neither one of them did anything until I demanded it. And they finally, after five days, removed a lot of that information, but only after our address was everywhere. So I am right. a reluctant public figure, but now I'm in it. And it's just, I really care about this. I think it's gonna, I think, um, it has the power to change a lot of things, and so I'm just going to keep at it, and the, I'm used to the trolls now. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas, and so, with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds, from all corners of life, how they came up with their best ideas, and that's what matters for Gray Matter. Hey everyone, I'm John Petrolis, Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Gray. For this episode of Gray Matter, I had the opportunity to speak with Matt Ribbets, founder of Sleeping Giants, a social media activism organization. Matt has worked in advertising as a writer for over 20 years, dating back to when he was 15 and working an internship at an ad agency. Matt has used his ability to come up with ideas to create real change in the advertising and media world. His organization, Sleeping Giants, works to combat racism, sexism, and all hate speech in media. Today, Matt is gonna share his journey in creating Sleeping Giants. This is Matt Rivets. I think, I actually really relish the idea of a blank page. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people are scared of it, but I just see it as an opportunity. Mm. And as corny as that sounds, I just, I think after this many years in the business, I've always been really restless and it's, I've been freelance for 13 years because I like the variety and I like that I could work on a car account at a certain place and then go work on a candy bar. And I, and I think there's always an opportunity to come up with something fresh and interesting yeah. and I'm not really afraid of it. I think after all this time in the business too, it's just, it's like breathing at this point. You just yes. know when you start something, you know how it feels. Uh, and I have a partner that I work with that's really good for unlocking. He's really great at unlocking my brain, too. And we yeah. kind of do that for each other. How much of your personal, like your personal life or your personal point of view do you bring to that problem solving or to that process? Um, I haven't really done that. I just, I view it always as a consumer. What would I want to see and what I think would be interesting and what would entice me to go buy something or be interested in something Yeah. Um, or what would motivate me. Yeah. Uh, I think lately I've obviously been involved in something bigger than myself and that feels significant. And I've definitely brought a lot of that knowledge to my work. I think, you know, I've been really thinking about how, not just how I feel, but how other people feel and how people feel when they're not treated equally. And so I bring, I try to bring that a lot to the work that I do. Empathy. Yeah. Empathy. And also just an, yeah, an understanding and, and, uh, a bit of social justice been involved in some of the work and not every brand is going to be into that but sometimes you have to think about that with casting and you know do we want to do a diverse cast do we want to you know be all inclusive and I think that's all really important I think marketers do want that um, because they want to appeal to as many people as they can yes um, but I've definitely brought that to the table 
you're working in advertising, you've had a very successful career, you've worked at great agencies, you're having a very successful freelance career. Tell us a little bit about what happened to make you recognize a problem that you realized you wanted to solve. Uh, yeah, so just after 2016 election, I had filled out all of these you know, petitions and all these things. It's like everyone else and nothing was ever doing anything. I'm pretty action oriented. And I was feeling really raw. I just felt like sort of immediately overnight race, there was so much racism and sexism and all this stuff came to the surface seemingly overnight. There was Richard Spencer, who's a neo-Nazi on the front page of the Washington Post. I'm Jewish. I grew up with hearing about the Holocaust and that freaked me out in a big way. And, and so I felt like I needed to do something, but I also didn't have anywhere to put that, just like a lot of people. But I got laser focused on Steve Bannon, not not on on Donald Trump. I I always think Donald Trump is kind of, um, to me, just a, maybe a symptom of a greater problem. And it, it really didn't have to, anything to do with politically with me, but I felt like Steve Bannon was particularly racist and was implementing racist policies. And I didn't know about him and I didn't know where he came from. So it turns out he was the... Uh, he was the president of Breitbart News, which was started by a guy named Andrew Breitbart as a reaction to Huffington Post. He worked at Huffington Post and wanted to start a similar website uh, and was more on the right, mm -hmm. but a sort of centrist and on the right. And Steve Bannon took it over and suddenly there were articles saying, uh, hoist and high and proud, the Confederate flag proclaims a glorious heritage. And uh, would you rather have feminism or cancer? all of these really horrendous headlines. And I couldn't believe what I was looking at. I was really offended by it, and I couldn't believe that it looked like news and was presented like news, and it was on a news website, and they had all these people looking at it all the time. Yeah. But was what was really shocking to me was that it had ads for brands that I had worked on on the same page as some of those articles. Yes. And I didn't know how internet advertising worked at all. Um, yeah still kind of don't a lot of the time. I think it's purposely opaque. Um, but uh, I don't think it dawned on anyone that was looking at the internet. I think because I'm an older guy, I'm, you know, in, I'm a Gen Xer. I saw, I just knew that those little rectangles that you see on those pages are paying for the page. That's how advertising works. And I think a lot of people just gloss over it. They don't think about it. Sometimes they click on them. Sometimes they look at those banners. But most of the time, they don't understand that when you see those, that's that's actually supporting the website you're looking at. Right. So. Uh, and just to again to check, did you you knew that? Yes. You, or you had that understanding. You didn't research that. You no, had that understanding. I knew that. I knew that yeah. part. You know, yeah. just from TV. Of course. You know, you used to know where your ads were going. Yes. And you know what TV show was on. It was going to pay for that TV show. Yes. Pretty simple. So. Uh, Immediately, I just thought, well, that's crazy because the first ad I saw was for a mortgage company, a progressive loan company in San Francisco. That would seem to be odd if they were on that page. Yeah. So I, I don't even remember why I did it or what. I just got, I got a little obsessed and, and I wanted to know if they supported that material. And, and yes. I didn't think they did. So I opened up an uh, anonymous Gmail account and I opened up an anonymous Twitter handle and I took a screenshot of their ad next to one of those articles and I tweeted it with zero followers and zero people following. Uh, I gave it this name, Sleeping Giants, because I wanted it to seem like it was more than one dude. Right. <laughs> and on a phone, right. you know, and, uh, and I tweeted that shot to the 
to the CEO and to the public handle because I had heard if you're ever sitting on a runway, uh, like on a on Delta or something, and you're have been there for two hours, then you can tweet to Delta and they'll give you like twenty thousand miles right. <laughs> for the for the right. just just because you you called it out. Yes, and it's a public medium, yes. right? So I did that and I sent it to them and I heard back that same day from the CEO saying I really same day from the CEO I really had no idea that that our ads were showing up there and then that took me to another place where I thought okay well there may be ten advertisers on Breitbart and I'll let them know and but it went from okay maybe they know purposely that they're on there to they don't really know to how many advertisers are going to show up here now so I really right. didn't know if they didn't know where their ads were going I thought well. I'm gonna to have to let them all know then because yeah. they don't know they're there and they don't know that they're supp the supporting the content on that site. So I, I started with some really shitty stock art and yeah. a really shitty like logo that I pulled off the internet and then I just started tweeting at companies one by one and then I heard from people that I would contact people at companies that I knew and I said, do you know that you're on here? And they said, no, okay, we'll do something about it. Companies were very reticent to say anything publicly yeah. at first. Um, and so that was kind of a battle because I needed to do, and a lot of people that are, that are behind the Twitter handle don't really understand how advertising works either. Yes. So they have to say, okay, well, let me talk to the people. They're usually like PR people. Yeah. They're like, course. okay, well, let me talk to the people upstairs and find out what's going on. Yeah. So sometimes it would take a day or two for them to get back and, but they sure. were, they kind of surprisingly got back a lot of the time. Yeah. And so that's how it began. And, and, it, and it was really surprising to me and I felt like. There was enormous satisfaction in a lot and talking to people. I, I love this business. I love advertising. I do yes. it. I want to be proud of it. Yes. And it was it was really great for me. I felt like I was doing some kind of service for them. And at the same time, I felt like they this this website that's putting out this really horrendous content. They shouldn't make money from this. I don't. I just really at my core, I don't think that that should be profitable. They have every right to say. What they're going to say, but I don't think they deserve money, especially from advertisers that don't know they're supporting it. So, all right, it's an amazing story, and I'd love to go back and break down a couple things. So, as we're talking about ideas, you talked about all of this. Uh, there was such a giant problem to solve in in your mind as you're looking across all these things. It sounds like the first step you did, which is I think uh, is a theme that comes up, is. You simplified it down to a singular problem. You chose Steve Bannon. You tried to find what is the core, the simple beginning thing that I couldn't, because you can't solve the world. No. And you couldn't solve everything, no. but you could solve a single thing. Yep. Um, so that feel, feels like a first step that yeah. was a powerful one for you. For sure. That was, a, that was a, uh, the seed. Yes. Definitely. So I have a little uh, definition of the creative process, because I get asked, you know, it's like, oh, so how do you, it, I think it's, Finding connections and patterns where other people don't, and then express then the expression of it is expressing it out in a personal way, and that's what makes human beings connect to it. So it sounds like I'm maybe I'm just doing this to fulfill my own theory, uh, but you identified that, but you also had a knowledge in advertising and how things the machinations of funding absolutely and you put those two things together yeah and then you the what i think is so elegant about the idea and the solution is you just took what already existed and it's almost like put a light on it so this is happening 
just so you're aware this is happening. You didn't, it isn't even really a comment on anything. It is a, this is happening. Yeah. Are you aware this is happening? Yeah. And then people were able to make their own choice and it put people in a position of either, yes, I'm aware that's happening and this is, um, th these are thoughts and ideas that I want to support. Yeah. And that would give, they would have the right to make that choice or, uh, I did not know this was happening, and these are not ideas and thoughts right. I want to support, and so I'm going to remove. And that's really important. Over. That's a really important point because um, Sleeping Giants has never called for a boycott of any company, um, and I think that comes from the idea that they ultimately a lot of advertisers didn't know that they were going to show up on a site like Breitbart. Yeah, um, and it was just information, and I still view it as information. I think it's been painted in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. But ultimately, it's an informational campaign, and and I believe that information is power. You give someone the information they need, and you make sense. You know, a lot of it is just a lot of it. I've been able to use my writing skills after all these years to, to talk to companies and to get the messaging right. And the messaging really is: Do you know what you're funding with your dollars? You, yeah. You've got you've you've got a lot of buying power as an advertiser. What what do your consumers care about, and what and I think that's become kind of a consumer-led movement. Uh, the whole thing is crowdsourced now. So it, so it's really people make their opinions heard. And and a lot of them are consumers of companies, and the companies want to listen to them. They have yes. to. Did you make the conscious choice that how do I grow the power of this? Or like what was the evolution after your initial... So I was, uh, I just thought I was sitting on this mega story, right? I thought 60 Minutes should cover this. Yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, yeah. I was yelling and screaming about it, and I thought it was really important. And yes. um, not a lot of people saw that. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it was just me, like, yelling into the void. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there are all these specific examples of companies that didn't want to support it. And, yes. and some companies were actually pretty proud of saying, yeah, that's not something that we're interested in. Yeah. At this point, are they publicly saying that there to you back? They're public, responding yes, publicly yes, and saying, we Twitter, didn't know. Right. We're, okay. And I kind of came up with, uh, with sort of a, a process to say um, when, they, when they decided not to advertise on that site, yeah. I, would, I would do a, a confirmation tweet, I call it. So it's a confirmed brand X yeah. has decided to no longer advertise on Breitbart. And yes. then they would get a bunch of... You know, I didn't have that many. I had like, you know, a thousand followers after. I mean, it grew kind of quickly, but yes. after a week, there were maybe five or six hundred people. And every time I would text a, another friend of ours and say, oh, my God, there are yeah. another hundred people <laughs> following. Yeah. And uh, I because I didn't know how Twitter worked. I mean, I was real yeah. bad. I had a by the way, I had a personal Twitter account of my own. I had sent 12 tweets in my life. OK, I'm sitting on like 60,000 now almost. Yes. You know, the more people that join, the more people that know about it. So then after like another week, um, I was just like throwing pebbles into the ocean. I'd get one one advertiser to leave and then another one to pop up. And I just kept going like that. And then I thought, and everyone was like, you're doing great. Like cheering from the sidelines. Oh, yeah. awesome. That's that's so great that you did that. And I'm like, wait, what are you guys doing sitting on your asses? Like, why don't you get to work too? Yeah. And that's when everything got really interesting because... Uh, I published a real simple set of instructions for what I was doing, and I asked to be tagged on all those tweets so that I could keep track of these brands that came in. And that was like lightning in a bottle because all of a sudden you took the 2,000, 3,000 people who were following 
And all of a sudden, they're getting different ads all the time because they're highly targeted. Right. So they would then do the same thing, and I would keep track of it. And all of a sudden, they were like peeling off by 10, 20 a day. Yes. And it got really intense. I mean, I was I was on my phone all the time, which is really shitty when you're trying to teach your kids not to be on their phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's not that's not uh, really that hasn't really faded over the last yeah. few years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it sounds like you stayed even in doing that. You stayed true to the very simple idea you had, That's and then even was. and then like you said, because simple's hard, simple and hard. but it's the most important thing. Yeah. And, and the instructions were simple, very which simple. was hard to one, two, three. Yes, which is hard to construct. How how yeah. am I going to de- deploy this simply? But it was so key to yeah. people being able to. Download. And also, I kept tweeting it because I didn't know that there was a pin tweet that you could put at the top of the page. So it kept going to the top and then disappearing. So if someone finally was like, Hey, Hey dude, here's what you do. Yeah. Just put it up at the top. I got a lot of help from people along the way. Yeah. It's great. Um, And then, you know, um, and then, uh, I had reached out to, um, someone that was, was, uh, she wrote an article kind of about something similar to what I was doing. And I asked her if she would come along. And so she's been running Facebook, um, uh, we started a Facebook page, and she's been running that, and that's kind of serves as sort of if there's lar- larger stories to tell, then she'll do that. So Got it. yeah, because Twitter, it's hard. You're you know working with 280 characters at the time. Yes, there's only 140. So yeah, when I started it, so that actually was super helpful to get it a double double, a double it up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, so the. And obviously it has now got an incredible amount of energy behind it, and it's yeah. got an awful lot of people that are participating. When you started the idea, you you were anonymous, yep. and was there a reason? Like, was that part of the idea? Was that important to the idea to be anonymous? Um, I don't know if it was important to it, but it, it certainly helped on a number of levels. Number one, when I started this, the uh, harassment online was and still is, but it was really at a fever pitch, and okay. there was a woman uh, in Whitefish, Montana, that got into it with some Nazis online and they brigaded her and they called, they sent her all these threatening texts and calls and just for, for like days on end and really horrific stuff. And there were, uh, also stories about people being swatted. So people would call the SWAT team on your house. They kick the door down and start firing if you're holding anything. Yeah. And that freaked me out. And so I really didn't want to be a part of that. And the troll situation on Twitter at the time, and still is pretty bad, but back then they were not watching the switch at all. So, um, it helped to have a layer of anonymity in between me and my life and my family and what was going on in the world. And also you're dealing with Breitbart, who's extremely powerful at the time. And, um, they, they could easily send, you know, 10,000 people your way to make your life very hard. Right. So that was part of it. And part of it was I'm an advertising, I'm a working copywriter. I don't want to anyone to get the wrong idea. I'm not working for a company. I don't, I just wanted to be able to put this stuff out in the world without anyone thinking that, okay, he's working on this. So maybe right, that right, they're right, trying right. to do something competitive with someone else. And yes, I just didn't want to mix up and I have, I'm pretty highly principled, yeah. and, but I didn't want anyone to get anyone, you know, any, any of the wrong ideas. Okay. So then, uh, how long did that, how long were you able to stay anonymous and what happened? Uh, it was be- a year and a half. Yep. Uh, and then last summer, I was out with my dad and my son for lunch, and I got a text uh, from a reporter from the Daily Caller, which is uh, part of it's a it's similar to Breitbart. And I knew the guy's name, and he had sort of he had sort of said some trollish stuff to me on 
uh, on Twitter a couple times, and they had written a couple articles, and I actually uh, got in touch with their editor and demanded that they change it because it wasn't true. They were making things up, so I just, mm-hmm. you know, I just felt like I needed to do something. So he, anyway, he, I got a call from him and a text, and then my wife got a call and a text, and she got hit up on Facebook um, by this, you know, quote unquote reporter, and uh, he put two and two together and figured out it was me and mm-hmm. um, all the shit that I was really afraid of was suddenly right on top of me and it was way worse than I ever intended it and it felt and, and but meaning he revealed your name he revealed my name it was you and he put that not only there. revealed my name but revealed uh, my wife's name uh, they yeah it was all in bad faith mm-hmm. I think I mean and it was all sort of done under the guise of journalism but it was also wanting as a gotcha it was horrendous the the harassment that we got over the next two weeks was soul crushing it was very very hard but i also made the calculation i said okay well i can either run from this and but that would make it seem like i'm not proud of this or i can run right at it and i think i made the right call i just said look i own this and i'm proud of it and i'm i would not change a thing and here i am it also all the things that i was afraid of came to pass and this thing only grew by double. So yeah. I, you know, I, I, it's hard. I'm, I definitely, there's some days when I look both ways when I leave the house, I have had stuff show up in my house. I've had, my son got a uh, death threat uh, online and it was very credible with listing the name of our synagogue and mm. the, and where to find him. And um, that was on the comment section of Breitbart and mm. our address was all over the comment section of Daily Caller and neither one of them did anything until I demanded it, and they finally, after five days, removed a lot of that information, but only after our address was everywhere. So I am a reluctant public figure, but now I'm in it, and it's just I really care about this. I think it's going to – I think um, it has the power to change a lot of things, and so I'm just going to keep at it, and I'm used to the trolls now. Did the – did it make things – in your personal life, obviously, it made things very difficult. Did it make things harder to execute being not being anonymous anymore? Did it make it harder to execute your vision or was it easier? Um, I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, I People have been, continue to hire me for my ad work and mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And I think it's, I don't think it's a pity play at all. I think they just need work and I'm happy to do it. And um, I don't, I've been happy to, you know, pick and choose been lucky enough to pick and choose, you know, projects that I've worked on, yep. um, and with brands that I think are cool, and mm-hmm. and that's great. Um, I've never t- tweeted at anyone that I've been working with, and um, but I do think uh, at the same time, it's made it hard because you want to, you, you want to have a uh, an impact. And you want to talk to these companies, but a lot of time, even if I'm in the business, I can't talk to them directly. Yes. So, um, yeah, sometimes it's like, okay, well, maybe I want to work on this brand at some point, but I also have to do this. I think it's important work. And I think ultimately they agree. I think a lot of brands don't want to be caught on a site like that. They don't want to support it. And mm-hmm. but they don't know how to get through it, and so right. I'm trying to help them get there. And that's what this has enabled me to do: is come be ex- being exposed, as terrible as it was, and as inconvenient as it is sometimes, uh, was is given me an opportunity to speak to a lot of companies directly, and that's been really good. And I think that's where big systemic change is going to happen. Not 
uh, not these little tweets. Big ideas, often when they have genuine impact, uh, which Sleeping Giants started having genuine impact, draws criticism also. Always there's going to be a reaction. Um, what were your critics saying? When, like when you were saying you got a bad backlash, um, since what you were doing was capturing information and just putting a light on it, what were they saying? Um, and how did you respond to that? Because that's also an important part, I think, when you have an yeah. idea of keeping it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, um, when when it first came out, they said, oh, he's, you know, trying to um, destroy advertisers that he's working with. And that didn't wash. There was not any basis, in fact, there. Um, and uh, And then they also said that I'm only going after right wing media. So. That's been an ongoing drumbeat. And this has been solely focused on racism and bigotry hmm. and nothing to do with politics in my mind. I don't think racism should be a political issue. It is for some, but you have to put that back on them to explain why. And so, you know, I've always said, if you can find me something and of any political stripe that uh, vilifies minorities and immigrants and women on a regular basis of 10 articles, then I have no problem asking advertisers not to be on that program or that website. But when it's a, a steady stream, it's, a, it's really easy to pick out. And, and I've only sort of addressed the really edge cases, the ones that are really egregious. And I think um, we're in a politically tough time, and I think everyone's, everyone picks teams. And so um, I think it, even if some people that read Breitbart would see where I'm coming from, from a, from a racial standpoint or from a bigotry standpoint, it's they're on their team. And, and, and I feel like I've got a team and you have to use that responsibly too. I don't, I've never wanted to go after some kind of publication just to keep everyone busy. I think this thing is powerful now and I want to use it in the right way and, and not, um, not just to keep it going. I don't want to do it forever, you know. I I I don't think it's a, I don't think it's something that I'd like to do full time because it's incredibly stressful. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to get to a point where the big structural changes can be made, where I don't need to do it all the time. I think we just talked about where the ultimate goal. Where do you see yourself? Let's say let's go shoot a few years in the future. You said you don't want to be doing this. Yeah, I think that's going to be. I think. I still love writing and I yeah. still think I'll be doing it. Yeah. I would like to see this thing turn into something, Sleeping Giants turn into something more significant and because I think it's needed. All right. So along the way, uh, is there anything that you did you think that might have been a mistake uh, that you would have done differently now looking back um, that might have set you back, you set yourself back uh, along the way because of how you approached it? Um. I definitely wouldn't have posted on Facebook that I was starting this because <laughs> that ultimately is what, you know, how they found me. Right. Um, uh, no, I think in general it's been a learning process and you make a million mistakes along the way. There's no one that sticks out. Um, I've definitely, a lot of the things that I've tried haven't worked. Um, I've done one or two things that I think are a little corny that I go back and change because I don't think they were like on brand for yeah. this. But yeah. in general, I think, you know, you have a lot of, when you have a lot of support, I think the, I guess the one mistake that I still make a lot of times when I get attacked 
pretty ruthlessly, then I will, um, quote, tweet something and say something about it. And so, and put it out for everyone to see. And I don't think that makes us any better as people. And I don't think it makes society any better. I don't think it makes Twitter any better. I think it just becomes a pissing match that, that doesn't need to be there. I th I'm worried in general about tribalism on, on a larger scale, Yeah. but tribalism online is really, uh, brutal. And, and I think that this sort of idea that you need to protect your movement, whatever that movement is like, that doesn't make, that doesn't make us any better. We need more conversation. And, um, and I think a lot of people would say that, oh, you're cutting off conversation by doing this. I, no one has lost their ability to have a conversation with sleeping giant, with whatever sleeping giants has done. But I do think like the tribalism when people, I'll have people really back me up if I say something right. and the, the other people that tweet just get, you know, ruthlessly attacked. And I don't think that makes, it doesn't make for a healthy platform and it doesn't make for a healthy society. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's what I would change about it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't address the trolls quite as much. Right. Any advice you got along the way that helped you that stuck with you or in any you would give? Remaining open to a lot of different possibilities is good. I can be a little close-minded and I'm, I hold on to like the messaging of Sleeping Giants so tightly myself. Um, I think a lot of it is, I guess my advice would be just know what you're getting into because I didn't and yep. it becomes, it became something much, much bigger than me and that's great. But you also have to um, realize that if you do something and it does have it, does make a dent, then you need to use that responsibly and you need to, you know, in anything you do, you need to, you need to keep an even, an, uh, an even mind. You need to like hear all sides if you can and make the call that you think is right. There's never been a, um, there's never been an instruction manual for this. And mm -hmm. I rely a lot on advice and I think getting and giving it is really important and just remaining open to what people have to say, because I still don't know from when I wake up in the morning, um, and it doesn't happen quite as much, but my heart would be pounding out of my chest every morning because I didn't know what was going to happen. I think not having a roadmap is infuriating, but it also opens you up to a lot of different possibilities. So listening to as many people as you can to help you get there is great. I tend to just listen to myself a little too much. And so I think I'd like to be a little bit more open, but I definitely have been aided with a lot of advice along the way. And I think just remaining open to that is, is a positive thing. You know, and you said, know what you're getting into, but then you also talked about waking up and not really knowing. I think there's sometimes this power in naivete. If For you, sure. if you know too much, I think I, I think it's about like so many things in life. Yeah. If you know too much, you just wouldn't do it. Yeah. If you really knew I how mean, hard it was going to do, my anything. son was going to get a death threat. There's yeah, no way. I probably not going to do this. Yeah, that's no, exactly that right. That would have been interesting to me. You that's know? exactly right. But yeah, and I think I think that's like an it's an exciting. I keep saying it's an exciting way to spend a midlife crisis. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like I certainly didn't know what was going to go down. I still don't. But I think that's like it's a it's an adventure, and hopefully. You make good calls and more good calls than bad, and, and you just kind of go into it bravely and hope for the best. Thanks again to Matt for that insightful conversation. I think it's a great example of how an idea can make real change in the world. 
To find out more about Sleeping Giants, follow the Twitter account that started it all. That's at SLPNG underscore Giants. Also, you can find the same handle on Instagram and at at SLPNG Giants, no underscore, on Facebook. For more from founders, creators, and inventors and how they thought up their ideas, be sure to subscribe to Gray Matter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review and tell your friends. Follow Gray's social pages for more information about Gray and new upcoming podcast episodes. The first season of Gray Matter has come to an end, but stay tuned to this feed. We'll be releasing bonuses and surprises between now and season two. We'd like to thank the following folks for bringing Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas to life for its first season. Our interviewers this season were Dan Bennett, Carol Chang, Kenny Gold, Graham Nolan, Joey Scarillo, and Holly Williams. Engineered and mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Townhouse Studios. Grace McDougall manages our social media. Communications are led by Christina Hyde. Graphic design by Lydia Dizan. Additional support by Ryan Cunningham, Elitsa Daskalova, Daniel Hunt, Abigail Hofflinger, and Mary Gorsi. Gray Matter is produced by Joey Scarillo, Christina Torres, and Graham Nolan. And I'm John Petrolis. Thanks for listening. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.